Hi, this is Jim. And this is Bax. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers' needs. Player analysis, game breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband, and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers Podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly. Hey, everybody, how you doing? Well, that's good. Welcome to Broad Street Hockey Radio's Ice Sport Radio. That's right, our rest of the league show. Uh, We're talking lists today. We're talking senators. We have a lot of stuff to get through in this uh, another great off-season edition, at least in my mind, because I put the the outline together, so I think it's fucking great, of Ice Sport Radio. My name is Bill Matz. I am your director of fun and games for the evening. Let's get right into it with the introductions. Uh, Let's lead it off with Stephalicious D. Steph Driver. Um, so, like, just some cleaning house notices. Um, we are moving forward with an exciting partnership that I can't disclose right now. Um, but what that means is the Patreon will be disappearing in a few months. Um, but our content isn't. Uh, it will be exactly where you could find BSH Radio. Uh, is where you'll be able to find Ice Sport from here on out. Um, and, and we've got a couple other really fun things in the works. So if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out for us, reach out to us. Uh, it's not happening right now, but it is something that we're, we're working towards in a couple months. All right, and since we're leading off with that, I guess we want to kind of apologize for the quality issue lately. Um We've been experimenting with some different recording techniques, kind of trying to master this thing on our own, Uh, use something that was recommended to us. I realize the quality. We've seen the complaints. We are back to kind of how we were recording in the beginning, using using the individual feeds and putting them together. So we're hoping that that's kind of going to fix that for the, uh, for, you know, in the right now. Uh, Let's throw it over to TheAthletic.com's Charlie O'Connor. So I've officially reached the point where I don't really have anything else to talk about. I am I just got done reviewing Andrew McDonald's season, and I'm starting to review well, da- well. I'm starting to review Dale Weiss's season. So that should kind of give you an idea where my head's at right now. Jeez, Charlie. I mean, I know you have your dream job and everything, but is it really worth it? I'm in a dark place right now, Bill. <laughs> Last but not least, the fly by herself, Kelly Hinkle. Well, I'm glad Charlie let off with that because that means I'm not the only one with absolutely nothing to talk about hockey-wise. Um, I will say, though, just to piggyback off of what Steph said, that um, when the Patreon winds down, I will have felt very, very thankful for everyone who supported us. And I will still remain friends with each and every one of you, even if you aren't paying me American dollars. <laughs> yes, no, well, very let's not go. Let's not go that far. I mean... You know, <laughs> some of you, maybe, but all maybe of some them, of you, probably all of not all of you. I only have so much time. All right. So we're going to we're going to lead off with uh, one of my favorite subjects, and that is defensemen. Of course, uh, the NHL put uh, the NHL network put out the list of the tw- top 20 defensemen right now. It has sparked quite a bit of de- debate across the uh, hockey Twitter sphere, but one of the guys who did make that list came in at number 20, Ryan Ellis, signed an eight-year extension with Nashville today, uh, $6.25 million average annual value, 
50 million total kicks in in 2019-20. This is a hell of a deal for uh for Nashville, right? Seems like a bargain. He's quite good. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a lot of money for him. I mean, the years are a lot. Like it's the max 8 years and he'll be 28 when it kicks in, but average annual value is really low. Um it kind of made me think about what we talked about a few weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. Uh, no, I think it was a few weeks ago about the Flurry deal and about how, you know, how Flurry they signed him this summer, even though he has another year left on his deal. And I basically yeah. made the argument that it doesn't make any sense to give a guy exactly what he would have gotten in a year, a year early, because you're taking the risk of signing him a year early and maybe he gets hurt and maybe his value goes down. Like, there's a real risk when you sign a vet to a a contract that's a year early. Classic example being, if you're a baseball fan, the Ryan Howard contract for the Phillies. So if you're going to sign a guy to a year year early, you would think the player should give back a little bit because he's getting the security of knowing he's going to get paid even if he has a bad contract year or has an injury-filled contract year. To me, this is exactly what should happen in a situation like this. Like, Ryan Ellis is giving up his contract year, so he doesn't have to worry about, you know, falling on his face or dealing with injury. He dealt with injury last year. Uh, And to get the security of signing a year early, he gave up a little bit of money, which is totally fair. To me, this is like, this this is the way these types of deals should work, unlike the way the Flurry deal worked, where they just drove a Brinks truck up to his house and were like, hey, sign this, please. Yeah, Ryan Ellis seems like he's a seven-plus million-dollar defenseman just in terms of overall value, but he is coming off the injury. He does get the full, you know, eight years a year early, so I think it's good for everyone involved. Uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of the term, eight is a lot for anybody. It's a lot for anybody. However, there's one thing I'll say about Ryan Ellis. Uh, eight years from now, if that dude's still on the ice. He's going to be pumping slap shots in for goals from everywhere, and you'll at least be able to throw him on your power play and get that out of him. You will be able to get raw points totals out of this dude for as long as his back holds up. So uh, watching him shoot is one of the great joys. And it's He almost gets lost in the shuffle because of P.K. Subban and just how great we say the top four is in Nashville and all the guys that they've pumped out through there over the years uh, who've left and who've stayed and they've brought in. But my God, is he good? Yes. <laughs> There's one uh, one thing about this contract. I'm into this stuff. I don't know how many people, uh, how many other people are, but the uh, 20, 2019-20 year of his uh, of his contract, which is the first year it kicks in, seven hundred thousand dollar base salary with a seven million dollar signing bonus. Every other year is all salary with no bonus. And this is one of those things that we've seen a lot lately. Players protecting themselves against potential uh, you know, lockout rollbacks or buyouts or really anything. Signing bonuses are guaranteed. If they, if they don't play that season, he still gets that $7 bucks. However, 2019-20 is a year early. Uh, in terms of when the lockout is expected. I've seen that uh, 2022-23 is the year that the uh, the CBA actually expires, and 2020-21 is the year either side can elect to opt out. So I, th- I found that a little peculiar, that he didn't take it in, in the years following. He took it in the first year, 
was, is, am I understanding this right? If anyone understands business more than I do, which wouldn't be that difficult, uh, why he structured it this way? I mean, it could just be looking for a payday before you have the work stoppage. So you're you're getting that $7.7 million guaranteed before the 2020-2021 lockout. And I guess since it's a... I mean, maybe, I suppose... just maybe, maybe he wants to buy a house next summer. Like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, it could just be something that stupid. <laughs> and I, I, I'm fairly certain. I know this is the way it works in football, but I don't know about hockey. Is that even if it's a contract extension that doesn't kick in until, you know, whenever, um, 14 days after you sign it, no matter what, you get the bonus. So even though he signed this contract a year early in two weeks or however long the waiting period is in the NHL, he gets a $7 million check, even though it's, you know, a year from now his contract kicks in. So I guess that's the thing. I, I guess that's the thinking. I'm not positive, but it was, I found it peculiar. So something that I found interesting, and I think that the only reason I saw this tweet, Bill, is because you liked it and Twitter has seen fit to show me things that other people like. I have, I may have art, art, actually pushed the retweet button because I find this stuff interesting. Yeah, it, it was essentially like asking, is there any other league in which players sign contracts that are essentially formulated around the expectation that there's going to be a work stoppage in a particular year? And I don't think there is. It's kind of ridiculous. I don't pay enough attention to other contracts in other leagues, so I have no idea. I just don't think other leagues have work stoppages. <laughs> that's sort of what it boils down to. I mean, well, that's yeah, that's the thing. Like, this is the this is gonna be. I feel like this is gonna be the second lockout where everyone kind of knew that the lockout was coming, and contracts and team plans were laid out kind of with the lockout in mind like if we remember back before the last one I feel like teams were signing guys to contracts that they didn't really care about because they knew that they were going to be able to get rid of them after the lockout and I feel like that's sort of happening now as well yeah prior to the 2012-13 lockout you could tell owners and GMs were expecting rollbacks like the uh the 0506 or 0405 lockout, whichever one it was, when there were rollbacks and everything. They got the amnesty buyouts, but they didn't get rollbacks on salaries. And you saw that with things like the Shea Weber contract and the uh, Parisian Suter contracts. That uh, The fact that they just got crazy overpaid thinking, ah, yeah, well, we're getting 25% back anyway. In terms of other sports... Football's different because only the signing bonus is guaranteed, so guys really go for the bonus money and the guaranteed money. Baseball realizes they can't lock out again because uh, if it wasn't for steroids, uh, their sport would have ceased to exist uh, following the last one. Basketball, the players have nothing to complain about because, Jesus Christ, the money in that sport's incredible. So, And it's also all guaranteed like baseball. So hockey's really the only one with these... Uh, with, I guess, these specific needs. But I want to get past this because it's just something I don't know how interested everyone else is in it. I just enjoy the business side and how the players are kind of uh, trying to prepare for what is obviously going to be a lockout. And I mentioned the top 20 defensemen list. Ryan Ellis is on that list. 
came in at number 20. We discussed this a little on BSH Radio last night, Ghost's inclusion, Provorov's exclusion. We got into the Ghost versus Provorov debate, but I just wanted to get everyone's thoughts on the uh, on the list as a whole. I guess I'll just read the 20 names, and then we'll go from there. Hedman comes in at number one, followed by Dowdy and Carlson. Uh, I guess you can debate the top three, but those are, to me, the top three. Then Burns, Subban, Jones, uh, Yossi, John Carlson, Petrangelo, Klingberg, Bufflin, Wierenski, Latang, Suter, Ekman, Larson, Krug, Gostas Bear, Hamilton, McAvoy, and Ellis. Uh, first question, glaring omissions. So I think li- <laughs> I think this list is a goddamn mess in in a lot of ways. <laughs> like, like re- really. But you know what? It's not surprising to me because hockey always does a better job of evaluating forwards than they do defensemen. Like, they, you can go from the front office to the fans. Like, everyone has a much better handle on how to evaluate forwards than defensemen because forwards have a very easy way to evaluate them, which is, did they score a lot of points since that's their job? Now, granted, there's a lot more that goes into it, but you can... If, if you take a look at a list of, like, the guys who have scored the most points in the last five years, it probably lines up pretty well with who are actually the best forwards in the league. Like, in the end, it, it, it works itself out. Defense is a little bit different. Like, I think the top of this list is okay. Um, to me, the top four defensemen in hockey are Hedman, Dowdy, Carlson, and Subban um, in some order. Like, if you put any of those guys number one, I'd be okay with it. I'm fine with Hedman being number one. I think Hedman is probably the best. I think Hedman is probably the best defenseman on the list, whereas I think Carlson is the best hockey player who plays defense on the list. So to me, it's either one of those two guys. Um, But like, if you wanted to argue for Dowdy or Subban, like fine, I'm not going to, not going to make a big deal out of it. Burns, I think is the first place where I start to have an issue because to me, Burns is, Burns is what hockey people try to act like Carlson is, in that Brent Burns is just a forward who plays defense. And he doesn't get as much shit for it because he's Canadian. I I honestly believe that. And he was actually a forward that got moved to defense. Exactly, yeah. uh, Yeah, and I think Carlson gets that, and I think you're right in calling him uh, and we're to Eric Carlson, obviously. We'll get to John Carlson in a second. Uh, but Eric Carlson is, to me, just like the guy, if you were to put together a list of the five guys who help you win games the most, yeah. Carlson would be in your lineup. I don't care where the fuck you play him because, you know, I want to get rid of line numbering and I want to get rid of positions altogether, honestly. Um, but Brent Burns... Mike, that dude is a coach's nightmare. He is the definition of no, 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 no. Oh, okay, cool. That <laughs> is, And he is so much fun to watch. And if you want to put him at the top of the list, fine, because I enjoy watching the guy. But uh, him ahead of Subban, I, I agree with your top four, and I would say Burns ahead of Subban is the first place where you go, ah, oh, really? Yeah, it it makes me think that they're they just looked at how many points he scores. Which is odd because that doesn't seem to be the way that they evaluated any of the other players on this list. Like, it's not just like a list of the 20 highest scoring players who play defense. There 15. seems to be a good bit on this list of actual defensive defensemen. But for some reason, Burns gets a pass, I guess, just because he scores so many points. Of the top 20 scoring defensemen last season, only five didn't make the. Uh 
didn't make the list. Tyson Barry was eighth in scoring, didn't make the list. Keith Yandel, 12th. Jake Gardner and Morgan Riley were both tied at 15th. And uh, Matt Dumba at 19th. So yeah, I, and I, they, I wouldn't have put them on the top 20 list. I wouldn't have put yeah, any of exactly. them. Exactly. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have included that. I'm just those yeah. were the only ones in the top 20 who didn't in the top 20 scoring that didn't make the top 20 defenseman list. Yeah, I I think that I've said everything that I have to say about this list on the show last night. I'm, I'm surprised that rookie McAvoy made it. Um. You know, Oliver Ekman Larson, I'm actually surprised that he's on the list considering he plays for Arizona and nobody gives a shit about Arizona unless people are now paying attention because of that giant contract he signed. Well, he's also, I mean, he's always been very good. He's very good, but I mean, he plays for Arizona. I, I do think, yeah. I think you're right in that the contract had an impact for him because uh, it kind of validated him as a good player. You know, it's easy to yeah. put like a monetary value on a guy when a team actually put a monetary value on a guy. The guy who I think absolutely got helped by the contract he signed on this list is John Carlson. Like, I get that he scored 68 points last year and the Capitals won the cup, but you can't tell me that if he would have signed a six-year, $6 million a year contract rather than an eight-year, $8 million a year contract that he'd be in the top 10. He wouldn't be. John Carlson is my um, is the dude to me who is most out of place on this list. Uh, I would take pretty much everyone on this list over John, and I'm not saying he's bad. If the Flyers had like if if Carlson had reached UFA and the Flyers had worked out some kind of contract with him, I wouldn't be against it necessarily. But like, I would probably take every other guy on this list over him, and a couple of guys who didn't make the list. Ivan Provorov for starters, maybe Aaron Ekblad, Colton Pareko, uh, Mateus Ekholm, uh, Giordano to me, we talked about this, a glaring omission, even like a Sergachev or a Will Butcher, I, I, I might just take just had to like, mention Butcher, didn't you? <laughs> I love Will Butcher, dude, I do. But I'm just saying, I would take like a bunch of players over John Carlson. Josh Manson was third in the NHL in five in five on five points uh, behind only Carlson and Klingberg doesn't uh, doesn't sniff the list. Matt Dumba ten goals was the third most at five on five, thirty one points, fifth most at five on five. I'd probably take him over John Carlson. Like, I just. I, I'm not saying he's bad. I'm just not saying he's... I, I don't see him as top 20. I wouldn't say he's in the upper two-thirds of the best defenseman in the league. I got to thinking last night after we talked about this a bit. Um, I I feel like Wierenski is always going to be perceived as better than Ivan Provorov because of that stupid Calder nomination. Like I feel like for their whole careers, he's going to be seen as better than, even though I, I don't, don't think he is. I don't think so. Like, I think he will be for now. I, I guess, in all honesty, I think it's going to boil down to um, what happens with the Flyers. Because I think if the Flyers get really good, Provorov is going to always be viewed as the, like, you know, the the hockey man's defenseman. Because he does everything that, like, you know, stereotypically you think of a defenseman being good at. That's him. Now, if the Flyers stay bad or stay mediocre, like— then yeah, he might never get there. But like, there are just so many similarities aside from their handedness in terms of the style of play between like him and a Dowdy. That I mean, how can people freaking love Dowdy? I just I, I think that eventually Provorov will get the credit and be like a regular Norris contender because he's just such a complete defenseman. Whereas Wierenski is 
you know, more of like a flashy scorer type. But in the short term, when like the Flyers aren't that good and they're both still young and Wierenski has the points and he had the big rookie season, yeah, I think Wierenski's going to get the hype. But I think that could turn once the Flyers are more regularly competitive and Provorov is the, you know, the guy in the playoffs when the Flyers are in the Eastern Conference final and he's playing 30 minutes a night. I hope so. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, it does take to me to be considered among among these guys. It takes a playoff run to be considered among those the the top defensemen. It, it takes a good playoff run. Your name up there when they're showing guys who are playing over half the game. I, I do think it takes that. Someone uh, on the list I thought was a little low was Dougie Hamilton. Uh, he finished outside the top twenty in scoring, but he's 18th on the list. Uh, I mean, uh, all of his all of his underlying numbers are great. Of course, his you know uh, partner Giordano he goes to museums though. Yeah, though. I mean, yeah. Well, of course, he's not a hockey man. Uh, but you know, when you see Matt Gior- uh, when you see Mark Giordano didn't even make the list, I guess. Oh, okay. Well, Hamilton's right there. Noah Hannafin's exclusion was a little uh, surprising to me. I guess maybe he's just got the one really good year. But of all. Uh, of all defensemen with at least a thousand minutes last year, Hannafin finished only behind Giordano and Hamilton in Corsi four percentage. I didn't realize he had that strong of a year. I just, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say this list is a mess necessarily, but I do think there were some glaring omissions. Yeah, Hannafin. I mean, yeah, he had the great underlying numbers, but I think it's fair to say that unlike Giordano and Hamilton, Hannafin was extremely sheltered. Like, he mm-hmm. pretty much only faced, like, third and fourth line competition and generally was with pretty good players, if I remember correctly. Whereas, like, Giordano and Hamilton, they were the top pair of that Calgary team. They were basically the best thing, aside from Goudreau, that Calgary had going for them last year. I like Hamilton. I think Giordano is a better defenseman than Hamilton still, but I would have put both of them on the list. Uh, the guys who I saw as the biggest snubs... Um, Giordano, number one, because I think I think Giordano is a top ten defenseman. I, I think he's a fantastic defenseman. Um, Hampus Lindholm, I I, I would have put him on. Um, I would have been fine with Josh Manson on that list too. Um, but that's like the the Lindholm Manson pairing is like Anaheim's version of the Giordano Hamilton pairing. And Lindholm, I think, is one of the most underrated defensemen in hockey. Uh, I could have made a case for Vlasic as well in San Jose. Um, considering I think I think one of the reasons why Burns is able to rack up so many points in San Jose is because Vlasic is taking all of the tough minutes and Burns is getting all of the easy minutes so he can just torch everyone that he plays. Um, so I think Vlasic, me, I, I would have expected him to be on at the bottom of the list just because he always makes Team Canada. He's you know a popular guy with the hockey people. So those three, I would say, are like my biggest snubs. And I mean, we go back to Provorov. Like, if you would have wanted to put Provorov as like nineteenth or twentieth, I would I would have been okay with that. I don't think it's ridiculous to say you know he deserved to be on there. But I'm I don't have a major issue that he's not on there. I'll put it that way. No, I think I would put the guys that you mentioned on before Provorov just because of age and experience. That being said, I think. McAvoy and Wierenski being on there and Provorov not makes it a little bit more annoying that Provorov isn't. But Fair. I don't really care that much. Yeah, I'd put, I'd put Provorov over McAvoy easily. Wierenski, like I said yesterday, I think Provorov's a better defenseman than Wierenski. I, I believe that. The numbers are better for Wierenski, so I'm okay with Wierenski being on there instead, but I don't, I would, I think Provorov right now is measurably better than, than Charlie McAvoy. 
Yeah, and we, I, I wouldn't say we overrate Ivan Provorov, but having been able to watch every game of his career, I think we just have a better understanding of how good he is uh, because it takes so much eye test. However, we have less than 60 games sample size of him with a good defensive partner. Like, so, yes, Wierenski and Jones are on there together. They get to play together, and they have for a little bit now. You know, uh, Krug and uh, you know, Krug has spent time, or no, McAvoy has spent time with Zdeno Chara, so you actually get to see, like, what it looks like to be a number one defenseman. And, I, you know, I, I think it's just going to take some time for Provorov to earn his way up the list, but I don't have a huge problem with his exclusion. Uh, let's. Do we have anything more about this list? No. All right, let's get to, uh, well, the, the hockey world suffered what can only be described as a monumental loss this week. <sighs> Wednesday night rivalry is no more. RIP Wednesday night rivalry games, guys. I've still got a Rest shirt. Rest in pieces. So. It's, the, it's the night you love to hate, uh, and it's, it's gone for good. The, I, the broadcast crew will still be joining us, I guess, uh, with Pierre, but it's their, their rebranding with Wednesday Night Hockey uh, showcase on NBCSN. Will be, uh, there's going to be double headers. They have a very uh, a much more diverse schedule ahead. When I, I assume we all saw this press release. We talked about the Flyers and their 17, uh, 17 national broadcasts last night. Beyond that, what did you take away from the NHL trying to rebrand their national broadcast, maybe have some uh, less traditional markets, feature some younger players. What did we take away from it? I like the shift away from focusing on teams and fo- and changing that to focusing on good young players because that's something that the NHL doesn't do enough of in general. Um, so maybe this will be a start of them actually embracing the idea of having stars. Um, so I like that. I also like that we don't have too many eight o'clock starts anymore. <laughs> and my first thought was that, you know, NBC is hearing people make fun of them for this Wednesday night rivalry, which was never a rivalry, um, which is good. It's good when a company kind of eats its humble pie and realizes that what marketing scheme they had was garbage. Yeah, that's, I love, like, the Wednesday Night Rivalry is a good idea if you're going to showcase, like, actual rivals and things like that. But when you're showing me, like, oh, yeah, it's uh, it's Flyers-Red Wings. They've never been in the same conference until two years ago. And uh, they met that one time in the Stanley Cup Final in 97. The Flyers lost four straight. And anyone involved in that st- series still in the game is actually running an organization now. Like it's, it, it, like, oh yeah, the uh, the Flyers and Blackhawks. Uh, the only Flyer left is Claude Giroux. He was a third line winger at the time. Like, I, it, there's no rivalry. It was just big markets. You might as well have just called it Big Market Wednesday. Uh, the thing I like about the new schedule, I'm a big fan of. 17 of the 25 Wednesday night hockey showcases will be double headers. And they're starting earlier. There's going to be a lot of 7 and 7.30 start times, like Kelly said. And you're going to get some West Coast games and some good games that you wouldn't normally see 
following your typical East Coast game, and I just think that makes a lot of sense. You have the audience. What the fuck else is NBCSN showing at 10.30 p.m.? Play me some hockey. You already have me. I'm trying to watch hockey. It's either that or I'm changing the channel. They might show, like, um, an old episode of Poker Stars, William. (laughs) The best thing... The best thing on that channel is the uh, the auto auctions or whatever the hell those things are where it's just the sound of engines revving and an auctioneer yelling shit and somehow there's like multiple episodes and people can tell them apart. If they were to just show <laughs> the same one over and over, there can't be any way anybody would notice. Hold on. Nope, I do have input here. <laughs> so one of my exes was super into classic cars. He was a loser. Um, Steph, I gotta just put this out there. You've got terrible fucking taste. I hey. am very, very aware. <laughs> I, I am very, very aware that I have excruciatingly terrible taste in men. And I make horrible decisions. So anyway, he was super <laughs> into classic cars. And he knew like a bunch of people who would buy classic cars, rehab them, and then sell them at these auctions. And it would be like must-watch TV events where his entire family was in front of the TV waiting for this one fucking car to get auctioned off. I've got to tell you, they never made much money. Like, the the cars that they were super into, and they're like, oh, this is going to get blah, 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 thousand never did never even came close anything that i thought you didn't marry into this freakish family (laughs) anything that i've seen go on in a fuddruckers parking lot i don't think i need to watch on television but that's just me (laughs) i you know kelly i missed what you said i said thank god you didn't marry into this freakish family oh my god they're horrific (laughs) i'm gonna show you a picture when we get off the phone it's a whole thing he's an identical twin and his identical twin is super hot and he is very not it's got to be, no. like, really painful to wake up in the morning and be like, that's what I could look like if I wasn't fat and gross. At me next time. I was going to say, <laughs> I feel attacked, driver. <laughs> How dare you? And while I, I while I overall think, it, to, to get a little bit back on track here, but I do love the, the, the anecdote, Steph. Uh, Listen, it's the off season. Yeah. Wanna, if you want to spend entire episodes talking about my nightmare dating history, I'm here for this. While I do want to overall praise the NHL for uh, uh, a fresher, better idea than the bullshit they were throwing at us the last couple years, it seems as if always two steps forward, one step back. The last place Chicago Blackhawks get a league-high 19 national broadcasts. It's so weird to me that they're so obsessed with Chicago. They just, they like, just can't good quit them. Could their- like, how good could their ratings really be? Could they really be that much better than, like, the Rangers or us? Or I think even Buffalo does pretty well locally ratings-wise. It's like no one watched the Blackhawks on television for, like, 20 years because they weren't on television. That's, like... what I was, that's what I was just about to say, Kelly, is it's new for that local market. It's still, like, it's still a crazy thing for them to be able to watch their hockey team on television because they couldn't until, like, the lockout. So, this is a big deal for them to still, I guess, they must do a good local rating. It's a huge fucking city, and they're still getting used to being able to watch their team on television. So, 
Yeah, yeah and I guess yeah. in like December you can't really leave the house in Chicago because it's a frozen wasteland. It's such a shame because you know they're doing it to push Patrick Kane, and there's guys on that team I do like, and you know it's just about pushing the only guy this league is interested in pushing. The one that literally no one likes. Yeah. At all. <laughs> literally no one. Well, I bet a lot of people in Chicago like him. Mm, debatable. I'm not saying it's right or, you know, defendable. I'm just saying people stick up for their guys. People are trash. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's the life. Look at the world. <laughs> you right. Uh, but beyond, I mean, the Flyers did get 17, so I can't talk too much shit on it. It's not like they finished last place, and I do think they are a young, up-and-coming team. But to have the third most national broadcasts for, you know, a team that hasn't been out of the first round since 2012, uh, I, I can't talk too much shit on it. But the Blackhawks are just so detestable. They are. All right, so and now, the, like, not only are they detestable, but now they're not even good. Like, they're not even fun to watch anymore. They can't possibly... That is fun for me, them being bad. They can't possibly Fair. be as bad as they were last year, though, right? Oh, they can. Huh. I don't know, man. Oh, they by the way, Brandon we may be Manning, going to that game so. whenever that is. Maybe. All right, guys. So I read an interesting article on uh, on Hockey News on thehockeynews.com this week by Jared Clinton, and he presented five players in make or break, last chance type scenarios like Niall Yakupov found himself in last year. Uh, I thought that was an interesting. I thought that was an interesting comparison and a, a, a just a, a way to go about it, looking at a guy who you know not that long ago first overall pick uh, and now. Back in the KHL, signed back in Russia this offseason. Uh, what was he, 2012 first overall pick, I believe, Yakupov uh, was? That that sounds right, yeah. It was, yeah, because yeah, his rookie season was the 48-game year, I think. So he was the 2012 first overall pick. And now all, already back in Russia, he cycled through like three teams and he's gone. So he presented guys, and I guess the first one I want to bring up is uh, near and dear to my heart, Peter Morozik, who, man... I've never been. I've never had a bigger personal problem with a player. <laughs> like, this guy, I was ready to just say, "Hey, you're the goalie. You're the Flyers goalie." You did say it. Yeah, I was like just ready to give him a four-year contract and say, "This is yours until Carter Hart beats you out." Um, his numbers in Detroit were never terrible, and I always thought if you just put a not trash team in front of him, he could maybe not be an elite goaltender. But it be, be a number one starter. Be a young enough guy to not get hurt all the time and be a number one starter for you and get you through a playoff series or two. Uh, it turns out he um, can't go left. He just can't. <laughs> he, he likes to turn his back. To, it's really fucking amazing how good this guy could be if he ever had a goalie coach because he's, his fundamentals are trash and he's in the NHL. It's unbelievable that he turns his back to the play. I've said all this before. I can't rant about Peter Morozik enough, but he is a reclamation project heading to Carolina. Uh, Jared Clinton made a point to say with Scott Darling's year he had last year, you could say both guys are kind of on the hot seat over there, but Darling had the benefit of the contract. Uh, what Peter Morozik, chances he's maybe not out of the league, but suddenly 
thought really, really low of uh, in perhaps fighting for fighting for an NHL deal a year from now. Very high. I mean, yeah, the thing is, like, last year he was a reclamation project and he had the opportunity here to turn it around. And there was, like, a solid 45 minutes where it looked like he was going to turn it around. Uh, and then he very much did not do that. And it was all on him. It wasn't really the team in front of him. It wasn't an injury. It was just him playing like absolute garbage. So I have zero confidence that another change of venue is going to do anything for this guy. Yeah. I, I The only thing that, that gives me pause as to whether this is actually a make or break year is that I feel like once you've once you've established yourself as like an NHL caliber goalie, you get a ton of shots in a backup role, especially if you're a guy who's perceived as like a high upside dude. So I don't know if he would actually be out of the league after this year, but I guess it's possible. Like he's, as Bill said, like his, his technique is just such a mess that if multiple coaches have just decided I can't work with this guy. And I mean, like the Flyers have Kim Dillaball who, you know, primarily due to the his work with Jonathan Quick and his his work kind of pioneering the the reverse VH, like he's thought of as one of the best goalie coaches in hockey. And if he couldn't do anything with him, and then Carolina can't do anything with him, and Detroit couldn't do anything with him after he fell off, like yeah, maybe teams just think that he's just not worth the trouble. I don't know. I mean, Detroit couldn't give him away yeah. at the trade deadline. Like they were willing to retain a ton of salary, and they couldn't give him away. I don't after his lack of success in Philadelphia and if he repeats that in Carolina, I don't see another team willing to take a chance on him. I mean, he he may end up like uh what's his face? Anti Niemi on like six teams in 3 years or something like that. Every team that needs a an NHL backup because somebody gets hurt might end up signing him. Maybe I, I don't know. I, I feel like overseas is where he ends up in a couple seasons. That's If it was any other position, I would agree with you, Steph, but we just see trash goalies get so many chances in this league. Like, it's that... It's like these these pitchers that kick around in the major leagues for 10 years. And it's like, yo, I'm pretty sure I could train my nephew to do what you do. <laughs> like... I mean, maybe, but Steve Mason, decent goalie, oh, still unsigned. Yeah, that's and fair. I think that's that's, uh, that's injury concern, but also he's got a bad attitude from what we've gathered, if not a bad attitude. He does not have a bad not attitude. Not a bad attitude. I mean a, have a bad attitude. An attitude that may not uh, get along that well in an NHL locker room, something that maybe he might not just warm up well to the good hockey men. I, I, I think he's viewed as, disagree with. I you. think he's viewed as a high maintenance goaltender. Yes, I think I think that I don't think he's viewed as a bad dude. I think the teams view him as high maintenance, and a high maintenance goalie is not necessarily the guy who they want to spend a million five on as a backup. Well, I think that's stupid. A name on this list, I didn't realize how far he has fallen off. And this guy got a lot of pub because uh, he made an all-star team thanks to his home country, you know, pumping up the vote and everything. But I always thought he was a decent enough player. I had no idea that Zemgus Gergensens, over the last three seasons, he scores seven goals a year and has put up points totals of 18, 16, and 15. I had no idea he had fallen that far. He's a guy I brought up when I said, uh, you know, now that Buffalo seems to have a little bit more depth, maybe he falls into... Maybe he falls into a role more suited for him. Uh, they had him maybe more in a top six role, and he's maybe just a, a good third liner or something like that. 
I had no idea how far this guy has fallen off. Granted, I hate watching Buffalo games because their home games look like they're shot in 1984, but uh, I, <laughs> I just had no idea that this guy stunk this bad. Yeah, me neither. I think that I was tricked into thinking that he's good because of that time that he made the All-Star game. I think because it was in Buffalo. And then also because he's got a top-tier hockey name. He does have no, a great he made, name. He made the team because the entire country of Latvia voted That's for what it was. Latvia. Latvia. That's, That's what it country. was. Yes. The entire country was out voting for him. Yeah, it was one of those it was one of those crazy campaigns where they've never had like an all-star or whatever before. And I don't think they've ever had a pro hockey player. That could they, be. they had a No, they had Oscars. Oscars Bartulis. Okay. Ah, oh, an all-timer. <laughs> My god. Who is now on the shit list in Latvia? The best tweeter on Twitter. My god. He's on Bartulis. their shit list because he signed in Russia and that's bad news. Latvia. Or something. Latvia puts out all-star names. I might get a Latvia. That might be my team come next Olympics. I might turn Uh-oh. my back on Belarus. Oh, oh my God. End of Traitor. an era. Um, uh, no, Bill, I, I want to I point this out, though. Like, this is a super cool thing to talk about. Um, so good good pull here because I missed this article, and it's kind of neat. Um, I, like, we talked about Gergensen's. Uh, Anthony Duclair. 100%. That makes sense. And same with uh, with Curtis Lazar. I mean, you're talking about Duclair. You know, he was the big piece in the uh, in the Yandel deal uh, way back. You know, the Rangers had him. They trade him that deal. And then Lazar was just one of those classic examples of Ottawa holding on to a first-round pick for too long and refusing to admit to themselves that he wasn't actually any good. Cough Cody Cece. And now they're kind of, like, stuck with him. They finally moved him, but, like, they moved him for way less than they could have done a couple years before when they were still convinced he was going to become good. Um, then there's Zaka. Pavel Zaka was on here. and I, I read the article while you were talking, and it's interesting that um, the guy who wrote it basically admits, like, look, if he has a bad year, it's not like he's out of the league. But this is definitely a make-or-break year for him in terms of him being, like, a viable top-six forward. And considering the guys he was picked above, Ivan Provorov, Zach Wierenski, Matt Barzell, like, Travis Konechny, you know, there's more, way more that turned out to be good already, and he's just floundering. Like, yeah, it's pretty embarrassing that they might not be able to even get, like, a top-six forward out of this guy. <laughs> Fuck you, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, that one was great, and because it was the... It was the pick that guaranteed us Provorov at worst Wierenski. You know, like, Provorov was my guy, but I loved them both. And it was the pick that guaranteed the Flyers Provorov, and I loved it. Duclair, like, this guy had a 20-goal, 44-point season, and I don't think he's put up 20 goals since. Yeah, he's really bounced around. Uh, yeah, I don't know what happened to him, man. I, I, like the, uh, I liked Columbus signing him, though, because... Like Columbus, you know, I kind of wonder if they can do the same thing they did with uh, Sam Gagne. Or That's turn exactly like, what I was thinking. Yeah, like a fourth liner who plays the power play, and maybe you take full advantage of his his skills, and you're kind of were able to shelter his you know deficiencies on the other end of the puck. Um, so that could be cool, but it might not work. And if it doesn't work, then maybe teams figure, well, they couldn't even get it to work with their way. How can we get anything out of this guy? Yeah, it's. Uh... It's going to be fun to watch, and these are some guys. Is there anyone before we move on that you think maybe um, you could add to the list? He's not nearly as high profile, but I know we've talked a lot about um, – Jesus, I'm blanking now. 
uh, Jordan Wheel yeah. as a as a make or break guy, and again, not not nearly highly as highly touted as a lot of these players, but a guy who uh, two years ago we're thinking, oh man, okay, this could be a piece here, and now it seems as if with his uh, with one year left on his deal, he's going to be fighting to stay in the NHL. Yeah, he's definitely one. Another one that I thought of was Max Domi. Oh yeah. I don't think he's in a. I mean, I think he needs to play well, but I don't. I think he's maybe more in the Zaka realm, where like he's an NHL, or it's just a matter of whether he's like a scorer or just a guy. Just dude. Just a dude. So there were a few guys I had because again, Bill, real neat topic. I like this one. Um, First one, uh, we have a uh, a former tenth overall pick, Magnus Pajarvi. I'm actually surprised he's still in the league. Oh my god, he is! But he's the. I think he's actually the video game player. (laughs) I mean, he was drafted in like 2009, but hey, he might play a lot of video games. Um, So I had him. Uh, this might be like his last because he's on Ottawa, so like yeah. he's going to get a chance because that team is garbage. And if he can't do anything in like a role that he's probably not deserving of on any other team in hockey, it's kind of like all right, dude, go play in in Europe. Um, Wheel was one, so it knocked him off. Uh, here's a guy who I think legitimately could be on his last legs: Anthony D'Angelo with the Rangers. Oh yeah. Because you're talking about a guy here who was a big name prospect who has a reputation of not being able to play defense, hasn't been able to crack the NHL yet, and he's a dick. So like he just strikes me as the kind of guy where like yeah, he's an RFA at the end of this year, but if he doesn't crack the Rangers lineup this year, I can see the Rangers just non-tendering him and then him not signing with anyone. So I remember this- people wanted the Flyers to draft him. He was that local, I guess. Yeah, he's a Washington yeah, Township a kid. And if you've ever played against Washington Township, everything you've ever heard about the kid is totally believable. Um, to, to this point, I would say the highlight of Anthony D'Angelo's career is breaking Wayne Simmons' hand with his face. <laughs> yeah, that did happen. <laughs> That's about it, yeah. So I want to move on to something that uh, we've talked a bit about, but I'm happy to hear a former NHL player finally say it. Alex Kovalev, in an interview, I had to, uh, I translated it from Russian, but I've seen this interview everywhere. Talked uh, among, I've talked about among other things, the state of the actual game of hockey, the way the NHL game is played, and just listen to this quote I'm going to read to you. I have not watched a lot of hockey lately. Now, the more uh, the more hockey, the more hockey is now so uninteresting in the NHL. You can only watch a few teams. The passing game is almost gone. Just running around, <clears throat> just running around alone. I remember when I took my kids to see the Rangers game. I just could not believe my eyes. For 40 seconds, the puck was on the ice. For 10 seconds, all the rest of the time, it flew on the board, on top, threw it away, threw it away, threw it away. Sitting in, I was sitting there wondering what happened, uh, what the game has turned into. Uh, a lot of it comes from coaches who are afraid of players' mistakes, that these mistakes will affect them. Sometimes it is uh, clear that the player has the ability, but he is forced to throw the puck into the zone, run and crush. For me, it's important to let the player open up, give him the work he can do without putting handcuffs on his hands. And he talks about his time playing for Bilesma and how Bilesma, you know, a Stanley Cup winning coach, would tell players, skilled players, throw the puck in. And 
he just Kelly and I have been trying to tell you people that Dan Bilesma sucks. He I sucks never bad. said he was good. Just saying, we've been trying. Man. But it's it goes far beyond Bilesma. Like, yes, this is him using Bilesma as as an example, but you know, he's talking about watching the Rangers game and not being able to watch it. And he's it's it's the state of hockey and for a game that is more skilled than it has ever been. It is incredibly frustrating to see all the fun coached out of it. And there are only a couple of teams that play hockey the way that it should be played at this point with the level of skill there is in the game. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is is definitely something that we've talked about in regards to Dave Hackstall um, a lot more when he was benching players like Travis Konechny and Shane Gostisbehere for playing the way that they play best for opening up their skill and and just doing what makes them successful on the ice. But this is a problem and seeing it come from someone who's been on the inside. It's, it's interesting. I mean, NHL coaches have a real knack of sucking the fun out of pretty much every aspect of this game that they can. Like, remember how fun three on three was like the first half of season that it was implemented it was like all run and gun. It was crazy fast. And now it's essentially three players cycling the puck in their own zone until oh, they can get a breakout. And then it, it's just not as fun as it was before because coaches have found a way to suck the fun out of it. Uh, I talk to, I always, you know, we always talk uh, about coaches and um, where they come from and how. A guy like Wayne Gretzky didn't make a great coach. But you get these, these you know, muckers and grinders who did have to learn the game because they didn't have the skill to just go out and do it and how they sometimes make the best coaches. But I talk to my coach friends about, uh, about the idea of possession and not turning it over. And it's like to them, if you turn the puck over at the blue line trying to carry it in and the other team gets an odd man rush and score, that's a turnover. But if you just dump it in over the red line, the other team gets a free breakout and come down and have possession in your zone, they don't view that as a turnover. And so much of it to me is because these coaches, their playing ability, they're so afraid to ask players to do anything they couldn't do themselves. Uh, Like, you know, Craig Berube wasn't orchestrating odd man rushes by carrying the puck through the neutral zone neutral zone carrying it deep into the zone and then turning back out and setting up a one-timer like that's not what he was doing he was dumping it in getting it deep and hitting a guy and I just think while I get yeah Gretzky just you can't have a guy who goes I don't know just beat two defensemen and then go top shelf I don't know how to how else to tell you to do it like there has to be some sort of middle ground where we trust the most skilled players who have ever played the game at this point right now that's what we have I just, I just think that it honestly, in a lot of ways, goes back to like natural human nature in that people have trouble, like an active mistake seems more harmful than the absence of anything good. And because of that, like a guy who doesn't actively screw up, but just doesn't do anything that actually helps his team is viewed more positively than a guy who does things that help his team, but then also messes up more often than others might. Like they just, it's just like they stick in your head more. The active mistakes stick in your head more than a guy who just 
doesn't obviously screw up, but also doesn't really do anything to help. Um, and I think that's a big reason why, like, yeah, maybe it might be helped by the fact that a lot of these guys weren't super skilled. Uh, but I do believe that there is a, it, it kind of goes back to, uh, like fourth going, going forward on fourth down in football. Like I, the way I've always explained it to people, which is why I love that Doug Peterson for the Eagles goes forward on fourth down a lot. But the way I've always explained to people is this, let's say you, um, let's say you're up by, you know, you're up by two points. You're at the 40-yard line of the other team. It's fourth and one. And your field goal kicker can't make a 57-yard field goal. So it's either you're going to punt or you're going to go for it. If, if you go for it and you don't get it, and then the team that gets the ball drives down the field, kicks the game-winning field goal, wins the game, it was the fault of the coach that they lost. Whereas if you punt the ball, and you know, pin them at their own 10, and the other team drives down the field, kicks a game-winning field goal, that's not the coach's fault, that's the defense's fault. So it's a way for like the coach to kind of shield himself from blame. And I think a lot of coaches do think like that. You know, I don't want, I, if my team, you know, if, I, if, if this guy dumps the puck in and the other team goes up the ice and scores, like, it's not that guy's fault that the other team went up the ice and scored. He just dumped the puck in and went off on a line change. But if a guy actively turns the puck over and they score, then it's actively the guy's fault who turned the puck over. So it's I think it just comes down to kind of the way people think and the way coaches think. Hmm. It's it's definitely – it's the reason I want to take coaches out from behind the bench. I think we shouldn't the, – the number one thing that would make hockey better, put the coaches upstairs. You can talk to your players in between periods. Uh, they can run their own goddamn line changes. They they know what they're doing. Claude Giroux's been playing hockey his entire life. He knows to call for a line change and when to get off. And like, you can do it. Trust me. You'll just come up with an idea. It'll be fine. I coaches are the are the worst part of hockey to me, and it's not even close. I don't so think you're coaches wrong. and goaltenders. Am I right? Yeah. So one point I will make though, and and I'm mostly like I mostly am on board with the stuff that Alex Kovalev is saying. Like, I, I agree with his overarching concept. However, Stephen A. Smith voice, I do think it's fair to point out that Alex Kovalev criticizing Dan Bilesman for not letting him be creative is a little bit more understandable when you realize that he played for Dan Bilesman when he was, like, 35. Like, it's very yeah. possible that Alex Kovalev was still thinking he was 10 years younger and, like, I can do, I can still do all this cool shit. And Dan Bilesma looked at him and was like, yo, dude, you literally can't skate anymore. Stop acting like you're 23. However, Dan Bilesma sucks. She right. <laughs> yeah, and if, if it's just simply, if Kovalev just simply says this because he has a grudge against a coach for the way he was told to play... That's one thing. Um, bringing up just the state of the game overall, though, yeah, yeah. I think he's using his example as, hey, this is just the way the game is coached. Uh, yeah, he was 35 and all that, sure. But if it's talking about watching the game and he sees the exact same thing happening to other guys, it's it's just something to note, and it drives me nuts. Yeah, let's wrap. Um, real it's quick. just starting to get dark and cloudy here again, and I'm really worried about Sunday. Yeah, real quick, the uh, Eugene Melnick, the Senators' owner, met with the Ottawa mayor, Jim Watson, uh, about the new downtown arena that has been rumored and, you know, talked about, and, you know, Melnick's threatened everything from uh, from moving the team to God knows what, but it, it seems like the, the meeting went well. Uh, big takeaway was 
it seems like Melnick's down to uh, to pay for the stadium, and it's going to have this whole uh, sort of downtown revitalization project around a new arena. And I, I got to tell you, if Melnick pays for his own arena and doesn't take public money, now granted it's going to take public money to do the rest of the revitalization project, but a, a new arena is often a big part of those things. If he pays for it, my... Uh, my opinion of him will drastically change if he's not just trying to siphon public funds I off because he's so that fucking shit cheap. When I see it, oh yeah, this Same. is a big. We are months away from anything. This is this is a hypothetical. I'm just saying, if it happens, I credit Ed Snyder with with saying, you know what? Now nah, I got it, guys, and building the Wells Fargo Center. I love that about Ed Snyder. And if Melnick were to do that. Uh, I think that would be, that would be a big step in the right direction for no longer taking public money to build billionaires their palaces. I just don't believe him or anything <laughs> that he says about anything other than him believing that the fans are the worst. Except when they give him organs, then they're great. I, I fully believe that he resents the person who gave him the organ too. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> this, this whole thing just strikes me as kind of similar to what happened in Chicago where the entire fan base checks out on a team because they utterly despise the owner and it literally t- it literally took until the owner died and his son took over in Chicago for fans to be like okay well you know the sins of the father aren't the sins of the son let's give this guy a shot again like I just don't know how this situation fixes itself unless Melnick is gone if I think there are two ways. You pay for the stadium yourself, you get the new downtown arena, and you re-sign Eric Carlson. Those are the two ways in the immediate and, you know, somewhat distant, but somewhat, you know, near future to somehow revitalize an organization that honestly is at the bottom of the barrel in terms of Canadian hockey. All right, guys, I think that is all the time we have for you on Ice Sport Radio this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. We appreciate your continued support through everything we've done with this Patreon over the last, geez, what's it been, like a year? I mean, It's been about a year. It's been about a year. So we've had- uh, we're going to continue pumping out content on this Patreon until we tell you otherwise, but just know there could be and probably will be some changes coming, and they're good for all of us. And... Uh, For Charlie, for Steph, for Kelly, thanks a lot. Have a great week, everybody. I was going to talk some more about the changes, but that's fine. Hey guys, this is John Stolnes from The Good Fight and the Phillies podcast, Hitting Season, where I talk to Phillies beat writers, broadcasters, and fellow Good Fight bloggers, as well as national baseball writers, and the occasional interview with Matt Klintak and Gabe Kapler. Also, you'll get continued success, a Phil's podcast hosted by Justin Clue and Liz Rocher covering all things Phillies, and The Dirty Inning, a hilarious podcast hosted by Justin and Trevor Strunk, looking at the very worst innings in Phillies history. Make sure you are subscribed to The Good Fight podcast feed.